Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit our website at yourgracepoint.com. That's point spelled with an E on the end, P-O-I-N-T-E. The website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Now, here's Pastor Aaron Zielinski. Join me in welcoming John DeVell to bring the word this morning. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. First of all, I want to uh, be remiss in not thanking Aaron and Gina for the privilege to share the gospel with you this morning. It's it's always a blessing to be able to, uh, I like to think of it in terms of sit and talk with you about what's going on uh, in the the section of scripture that we're going to look at this morning from Amos. And I, uh, I titled the teaching this morning, uh, Amos, a Humble Servant. And uh, I know that as you read Amos this week, and, you know, maybe in previous weeks, and uh, that uh, Amos was a pretty special guy. And he's a very, very humble man. And we're going to see why he was so, and why God chose him, handpicked him out of tens of thousands of people that he could have picked from to deliver God's message to his people. But first of all, there's a couple of things I want to uh, share with you before we, before we get into the word. Uh, Years ago, I met a man. He's, uh, his name was Bishop K.C. Pillai, P-I-L-L-A-I. And Bishop Pillai was a uh, clergyman in the Indian Orthodox Church. He was born in 1900, died in 1970. And the last 20 years of his life he spent in America. And his main function in life was to bring to the Western Church, particularly here in America, what he titled in three little volumes of books that he wrote called Light Through an Eastern Window. And it was his responsibility to bring us as Americans understanding of the Bible being an Eastern book and the people in the Bible being Eastern people and to help us understand scripture through that viewpoint, through that lens. And that's why he titled this three, this three book volume light through an eastern window. And in particular, I wanted to read a couple of paragraphs to you about the sycamore tree. And in scripture, the fig is much appreciated in the east as a sacred tree. It is a symbol of prosperity. Also, its shadow is beautiful. When mothers have to work on the land, they bring their babies and place them under a fig tree for shadow and prosperity. In John 1.48, it said, when Jesus says to Nathanael, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. He meant that he knew him since he was a child. I saw you under the fig tree is an Eastern idiom, meaning I have known you since you were a baby. The one exception to this 
And what we're going to look at this morning in Amos is the sycamore fig, whose fruit is despised and avoided by all because only cows and pigs eat it. No self-respecting person eats from the sycamore fig. With this knowledge, it's possible to understand more clearly the story in Luke 19 about Zacchaeus. And we're going to turn to that in our Bibles. I'm going to read it to you. This is Jesus. He entered, into, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. It was practically unthinkable for a publican and a rich man such as Zacchaeus to come near a sycamore fig, much less climb up into it. Zacchaeus was eager to see Jesus, that he climbed the tree anyway, and by so doing, humbled himself, not counting the cost of being ostracized by all society. Jesus saw that he made room for God in his heart. Jesus therefore honored the humility and faith and invited himself to Zacchaeus' home. Isn't that amazing? You know, for decades in reading scripture and in being involved in children's fellowship and that for years, June and I were doing those kinds of things. And we'd sing the song, the children's song. You all know it, I'm sure. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Well, why did he, did you ever ask yourself why he climbed up in a sycamore tree besides wanting to get a better view of Jesus coming down the road? That's why. He humbled himself by doing that. He humbled himself because everybody hated figs because they were some kind of nasty fruit that they only gave to hogs and cattle, and they didn't want anything to do with that. But Jesus saw it from a different perspective, didn't he? Another thing I want to share with you, too, before we get into the, the body of, of uh, Amos's writings, and that's to talk a little bit about a prophet's responsibility. We know that Amos was a prophet called by God. But what did all that entail? Well, a lot more than I can share with you this morning. But just in a nutshell, a common image of a prophet in contemporary America, and I chose my words kind of carefully here, is a screaming rude narcissist who thinks he's the only Christian on the planet. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of anybody like that. I have, and that's why I could write this, because I experienced it firsthand. It's pathetic to hear and see what some people, and even they ascribe it to themselves, self 
proclaimed prophets. I don't know that anybody in Scripture, and I may be wrong about this, and somebody will correct me afterwards if that's true, but if any prophet ever stood up and said, I'm the prophet and you guys need to listen to me, or, you know, you need to listen to me. Well, that's not what a prophet is or what a prophet does. Some of the confusion may come from people seeing the word bold with reference to a prophet. But bold in Bible terms doesn't mean a loud or obnoxious person. It simply means free-spoken. It means he speaks to everyone the same way. The meaning of what he says isn't hidden or changed for the rich or for the poor. He's a humble man who speaks what God tells him to say. Amos was such a man. Amos didn't play. He took care of business he got the job done. When there's a doctrinal problem in an area, in a community, the pattern of a prophet's message can be this. Number one, here's what's wrong. Number two, here's what can be done to fix it. Number three, here's the benefit of fixing it. Number four, here's what'll happen if you don't fix it. Number five, here's what God feels about it. Number six, your choice is to fix it and reap the benefits or don't fix it and suffer the consequences. This pattern's not always the same sequence, but these basic elements will usually show up in what a prophet says and does. Prophets are, uh, in my mind, meant to be admired, meant to be listened to, and when I say men, it's an inclusive noun, okay? Because there are, have, and have been women prophets, so please don't be offended by that. So those basic elements will show up in what he is saying and doing. Who was Amos? The prophet Amos lived among a group of shepherds in Tekoa, a small town approximately 10 miles south of Jerusalem. He was a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah. Although it doesn't say in Scripture anywhere, I don't believe that they ever had any communication among themselves. But they were contemporaries. They were out doing God's business at the same time. Amos made clear in his writings that he did not come from a family of prophets, nor did he consider himself one. Rather, he was a grower of sycamore figs as well as a shepherd. We're going to look at Amos chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go and prophesy to my people Israel. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That's an Amos 1.1, actually, I believe. But anyways, this earthquake somehow in ancient history is significant, but we don't really know much about it or why it was significant, other than it was a time reference, 
there was an earthquake about this time. Everybody knew about it because everybody felt the ground shake underneath them. And it was a, t- a point of reference for everyone. Let's look at Amos 1.1 again, please. I'm sorry, skip to Zechariah 14.5, Stace. Zechariah 14.5. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Uzziah. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones will come with him. So again, this point of reference, this earthquake, had some significance to the people that lived in that time. Otherwise, God wouldn't have had it in Scripture, right? There reigns uh, Uzziah and Jeroboam. Their reigns overlap for about 15 years from 767 B.C. to 753 B.C. Though he came from the southern kingdom of Judah, Amos delivered his prophecy against the northern kingdom of Israel and the surrounding nations, leading to some resistance from the prideful Israelites. Let's take a look at Amos 7.12. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. Amos wasn't well received where God sent him. That's what that's talking about there. They told him, get out of here and go somewhere else and talk your nonsense there. That's the heart of what they're doing. Can you imagine, you know? But that's, that's the mind of the flesh, right? That's the mind of the flesh. They're just looking at this guy who was a sheep herder and a cattle herder and it tended to sycamore trees. They knew who he was They didn't want anything to do with him because of his background. What he had to say was irrelevant. What he had to say was unimportant. What he had to say, they didn't want to hear. So they told him, get out of there. Jeroboam's reign had been quite profitable for the northern kingdom, at least in a material sense. However, the moral decay that also occurred at that time counteracted any positives from the material growth. So these guys also thought pretty highly of themselves because of the material benefits, the prosperity that they were, um, that they had been blessed with. And because of their social status, they didn't think that a guy like Amos had anything to say to them that was relevant at all. They didn't care to hear from him. So the next thing I want to look at is why is Amos important to us? While most of the prophets interspersed redemption and restoration in their prophecies against Israel and Judah, Amos devoted only the final five verses of his prophecy for such consolation. We'll see that in just a little bit here. Prior to that, God's word through Amos was directed against the privileged people of Israel a people who had little to no love for their neighbor, who took advantage of others, and who only looked out for their own self-interest. Sound familiar? Is there anything new under the sun? There is not. They were a privileged people in that culture, but people who were in need, 
people who could use their help, people who could be loved, right? Weren't getting that from their brothers and sisters in Israel. And the same thing happens in the church today. There are people in need all around us. People who have illnesses, people who are hungry, people who need a job, all kinds of needs. And there are people in our culture who have the means and the wherewithal to help out because this is what a church is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about bringing the good news of the gospel to people and helping them and loving them through their problems. That wasn't happening in Amos' day. God wasn't pleased with it, and he sent Amos to say something about it. More than any other book, or almost any other book in Scripture, the book of Amos holds God's people accountable for their ill treatment of others. It repeatedly points out the failure of the people to embrace God's idea of justice. Have you got an idea of what justice is? It ought to be lined up with what Scripture says. Amen? Justice should be lined up with what Scripture says. Is God always just? Yes. Right? That's a rhetorical question. You know the answer to that. He's always just. So if I'm going to be a just person, all I need to do is line up what God says about justice, and then I will be a just man. They were selling off needy people for goods. This is incredible to me. They were trafficking in people. They were taking advantage of the helpless, oppressing the poor, and men were using women immorally. Did I say something about there's nothing new under the sun a moment ago? We're going to look at a few verses real quickly here in a row beginning in Amos 2 and verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, here it comes, folks. When you see that in Scripture, you know that God has said something to the prophet or whoever he spoke to. Thus saith the Lord, you better listen. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl. Listen to that. These are God's people, and they're doing this nonsense so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those that have been fined. Amos 3.10. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. We were talking about this this morning, Aaron and I. He was reading this with his family. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, 
bring that we may drink. The women were saying, (laughs) you have to laugh at some of this stuff because it's so incredible. It's almost unbelievable. Let me read that last verse again. Make myself laugh. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. There's a recurring theme here regarding people in need. And again, I always keep in mind who is God talking about here. This information, this revelation that he gave to Amos, he's talking about the people that he chose, Israel. God's handpicked family at that time. They're doing all of this crazy stuff. Amos 5, verses 11 to 12. Forgive me. 8, 4 to 6. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may all sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale that we will make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Commendable, right? No. It's so wrong on so many fronts, it's just incredible. Drunk on their own economic success, and intent on strengthening their financial position, the people had lost the concept of caring for one another. Amos rebuked them because he saw in that lifestyle evidence that Israel had forgotten God. When a people or an individual forget about God, they put themselves into a really bad place. So what's the big picture from Amos? With the people of Israel in the north enjoying an almost unparalleled time of success, God decided to call a quiet shepherd and a farmer to travel from his home in the less sinful south and carry a message of judgment to the Israelites. The people in the north used Amos' stature as a foreigner as an excuse to ignore his message of judgment for a multiplicity of sins. However, while their outer lives gleamed with the rays of success, their inner lives sank into a pit of moral decay. Rather than seeking out opportunities to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, they embraced their arrogance, idolatry, self-righteousness, and materialism. Amos communicated God's utter disdain for the hypocritical lives of his people. 
We're going to look now at Amos 5, 21 to 24. I hate, this is God speaking to his people. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. <laughs> Glory to God. That may be the, the most famous quote from Amos ever heard in America. Dr. Martin Luther King used it in his I Have a Dream speech. And it's an incredible verse just to meditate on. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What a mind picture. God is so good, and he wants us to do so good. And he gives us this information. He gives us these words that we can let them sink into our hearts and act upon them. Amos's prophecy concludes with only a brief glimpse of restoration, and even that is directed to Judah rather than the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos 9, 11 to 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Isn't that beautiful? I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Amen? Amen. Isn't that wonderful? So how can we apply Amos to our lives? You know, on the surface, we look at this and we see a guy who prophesied for God for sake of round numbers about 800 years before Christ. What does that have to do with me? Injustice permeates our world, yet Christians often turn a blind eye to the suffering of others for more important works like praying and preaching. But the book of Amos reminds us that these works, while unquestionably central to a believer's life, ring hollow when we don't love and serve others in our own lives. Do you find yourself failing into that, falling into that trap at times, prioritizing prayer over service? It's an honest and fair question. I ask that of myself. Is what I'm doing right now 
more important than loving others and serving others. And I know that this is loving others and serving them too by what I'm doing. But when I'm not doing this, what am I doing with my life? This is what Amos is talking about. This is what God's talking about. The prophecy of Amos should simplify the choices in our lives. Instead of choosing between prayer and service, the book of Amos teaches us that both are essential. God has called Christians not only to be in relationship with him, but also in relationship with others. For those Christians whose tendency has been to focus more on the invisible God than on his visible creation, Amos pulls us back toward the center where both the physical and the spiritual needs of people matter in God's scheme of justice. We need to be centered in the gospel. We need to listen to God's still small voice in what he would have us do. We need to stay centered in scripture. We need to be loving and kind and compassionate as Jesus Christ was our example, amen? We just need to look at him and look at scripture and do what's right. You know, there's a lot in our country in the news and so on about social justice and so on. And I tell you, if you're not careful, it'll overwhelm you. That if there's not a balance between the time that you spend, the time that I spend in thinking about these things and reading about these things, if I'm spending an hour in the news, for example, I need to spend five hours in scripture to, to balance things out. I don't want the world to influence me. I want scripture to influence me. I want my Lord Jesus Christ to influence me. I don't care about all of this SJW stuff and LGBTQ plus and I, I love people. Yes, amen. I love people and I want them to come to a knowledge and an understanding of truth because it's only the truth that'll set anybody free. It set you free, did it not? It set me free. Truth sets us free. And the only place you're gonna find truth is in scriptures. Scripture says, thy word is truth, to use the King James Version words. Your word, God, is truth. Everything else is a distraction for us. But don't ever think as a people here in America, using that example, that we don't help others. America is the single largest contributor to helping hungry and sick people around the world. Is there corruption in that process? Yep, there sure is. But that doesn't mean that with a heart of giving and service and love, that when we give of our time, of our talent, of our finances, that somehow or another, I believe God gets it right where it's supposed to go. Where does that help come from? Believe it or not, and I know this to be a fact, when you pay taxes, that tax money goes to these charitable organizations. Your free will giving goes to wherever you decide to give it to. We give here at our church. We support 
organizations here in our church, but if you're out on the street and you see somebody that has a need, help them. Help them. Give them the good news. God loves you. He wants the very best for you. Here's 20 bucks. Go get yourself something to eat. See, that's a godly thing. Our tax dollars and free will giving to church organizations and charities, we take care of our families, our co-workers, our employees, and those that we see in need in our everyday lives. Remember, God looks at our hearts always. He sees and hears. He's honored when we do His will. Amen. Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, the website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Until next time, God bless you.